we are whole and our planet is whole, whole earth, whole us. I think that needs to be hashtagged and put out there. We've heard far too much of the language of broken and Mm. irreversible. And if you start going to church, the little word that comes up a lot is brokenness and sin. And there are other ways that we can see that we've veered off course, but we remain whole and our planet remains whole and how we can, from that space, better see the path to healing and restoration. Hi, I'm Benji Ross. And I'm Anna Perpera. And we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands. Where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life. Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet and feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders. The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people in place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life. And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The earth needs her humans to come together as one, to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in? Well, welcome everyone. Uh, Today, Anna and I are interviewing the dynamic and relentless seeker for how we can all better care for the earth, Heidi Stelzer. Heidi knows that a just world, an equal world, a sustainable world are all possible. Uh, She is an environmental scientist and explorer. She finds awe and wonder in some of the places on earth that not a lot of people go. Uh, If you get the opportunity to meet her, just know that she has some stories about places like Antarctica and remote alpine landscapes. Uh, It is her many travels to high latitudes, to the poles, Uh, where she's been able to bear witness to our changing earth. Her approach to sciencing is refreshing. Her priority is not prestige, but something, I'm going to go ahead and say bigger. Uh, She wants to help others so that we can all better use science as a tool to make decisions and engage in practices that are good for all of us. Uh, She is an advocate for identifying common ground and mutual understanding, bringing people of all backgrounds together, for gathering, connection, and celebration. Most of the time, you can find Heidi somewhere in the mountains or deserts surrounding Cortez uh, or Durango, Colorado. She is a resident of the San Juan Rivershed and more broadly, the Colorado River Basin. Okay, welcome, Heidi. Uh, so good to have you. Uh, before we jump into some questions, we like to start things off around here with a little gratitude practice. Uh, it sets a nice tone. It gets us synced up into a, a brighter present moment, open to a brighter future. So uh, would either of you like to start things off? I can, I can start. So today I'm really feeling a lot of gratitude for understanding coworkers. And I would also include Benji in this too. Just people that are there when, uh, when things are just frustrating and you just need somebody to to chat with. I'm very, very grateful for those kinds of people. Nice. Oh, yeah. I want to be grateful for that too. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was nice to vent just a little bit to you, um, you two and for you two to get it. Yeah. 
I am also grateful for how beautiful this fall has been. I haven't gotten outside as much as I would like because I filled my schedule with a lot of things, but it sure, sure has been pretty. Hasn't it? Yeah. I've had the same conversation. I mean, a lot of people are talking about it, but yeah, the cold weather's come on so slow and we haven't had big, big wind or rain events. It's unreal. I don't know if I've ever, it's been a really long time since I've seen colors like this. So yeah. Thank you for that reminder. I'm, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for my dog. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time with her and this, this yurt has been fairly isolating and fairly lonely at times, but I always have my dog with me. And I just love how much she's always in the moment. She's just always completely in the moment. Um, (laughs) And there's just something, I mean, she's pretty, pretty hedonistic. She's always after treats. She's always after, you know, she's food motivated for sure. And so she's a bit obsessive in that way. But for the most part, it's nice to to be able to be around that somebody that I'm really close to who's just always there and experiencing what's around and not preoccupied with worries and other stories. And that's just nice mm. having an animal mind around. So, yeah. And then and then getting into the questions because of uh, your background in education and like your unique perspective, I mean, you just have so many interesting things to share that can inform the way that we the rest of us think. You know, we, we also want to focus on bi-regional learning. And in this podcast, how are we focusing on the role of landscape leaders and, and sharing the story of why these people are essential and and sharing the, the, you know, the variety of different forms that different landscape leaders take. And then also talking about bi-regional learning and how they fit within that and how they, you know, are bringing energy to that, bringing coherence to bi-regional learning in their places. Anna, do you want to jump into the Heidi questions before we jump into bi-regional I learning? I'm the sure. way that you phrase that. I mean, it's just so fun because each of us is such a beautiful, unique entity being body and soul on our planet. I love the idea of being asked Heidi questions, but then I love the idea of that, like everybody gets to be asked Bill questions and John questions and, you know, Sharina questions and whatever. (laughs) It's kind of fun to think about it that way. (laughs) Nice. All right. Let's get into some Heidi questions. Yeah. We have a couple that really fits very well with what you came in with. Yeah, definitely. But I'm thinking since this is how I know you, I wanted to ask you to kind of uh, talk a little bit about how you integrate pro-social into the scientific field. I know that in the past you've talked about how you feel like pro-social would just improve the scientific approach towards solving meta crises. We're able to collaborate and really get along and break down these silos, how great that would be. But yeah, how do you see pro-social fitting into all of that? And how is it leading your approach? Um, One of the ways that I described it is that we trust who we know. Mm -hmm. And so where and who and who can be parts of our earth, who can be a human, who can be um, God, who can be platforms in social media, or in the news, right? Let's see a lot as who. And we trust who we know. So if some way there has been a connection made and we feel resonance, I like the word that Benji used, coherence, connection with one of these many who's, then we start to accept what we receive in knowledge and information and ideas and in energy flow from those who's and it influences us us. and 
some of the guidance I've gotten in the pro-social spaces and in the psychology spaces is look at who's around you because that is your energy field. That is who you're attracting and that is who you're receiving energy from. And in that space, we can, as we all know, as humans dive to darkness or rise into light and rise into the light of cooperation, rise into the light of love, rise into the light of allowing ourselves to be transformed. And each little step of transformation becomes another opening, another opening to greater openness so that we attract something different once we step into that open space. I mean, think about how different it feels when you're in and on those parts of the planet right? And you can just feel like you can just like, this is a mudra I learned yesterday in, um, in the yoga training, actually it was on Saturday in the yoga training I was doing, and you can't quite see, but my arms are out to my sides and I'm in this expression of I'm ready to receive and think about where and when you feel like you want to do that. And for me, it's the tundra. It's a mountaintop. Um, for me, it's, you know, the plains of the Arctic, but it's also the desert. I feel like there's just, especially in winter, immense beauty in the Kenyan desert rock where we, there's so little vegetation that you can just see and feel the bedrock of the earth, the earth forming in a way that gets hidden once you get to a place that has more water and the plants all cover it up. So I see it as helping us to pro-social. So the it is pro-social is helping us to understand those patterns in ways that bring us into a greater space of love and cooperation that can fuel all the work that we need to be doing. Um, because some of these things that I'm talking about, I've said it with a positive tone in my voice, but we all, all know it can be really hard to do some of these things sometimes, especially when we've gotten pretty mired and stuck. The psychology spaces of pro-social help us to understand, oh, look, I'm stuck. And to honor that stuck space, honor that stuck space and know that there are paths out of being stuck. And I think that's where we're at as a world is that we got into a stuck space societally, culturally, we can start to name that stuck space. It's We're stuck in capitalism. We're stuck in systems of oppression. And then we can start to name the many systems of oppression that are part of our world. And here's this beautiful evolving space that comes from the field of evolution. Pro-social comes from the field of evolution. That's where and how we can evolve out of these stuck spaces together, not alone, because alone won't work. Not on a planet where integration is so important. Oh, that's such a great answer. Uh, and I'm just, I'm struck uh, by just how you integrate all of these sort of seemingly disparate things like your spirit, like you have a deep spirituality and you, you, so you bring in science, but you also are a representative of the, the oppression in science. You have been an outspoken person. You're outspoken in a number of ways. I'm wondering, you know, I'm just trying to search for a, a question, a way of framing, basically, how'd you become like so dynamic <laughs> and, and just like ornery and and fun and oh I do love that you just called me ornery you are 
I love it. I appreciate that about you and you are. And, and I wonder if, is there a story that you have that, that is coming up in you that, that could help to illuminate for us how you became the, the special person you are? I knew this is where you were going, Benji. Uh, and I thought, damn, is he really going to take us, take us there <laughs> um, so quickly? Like we just got started, but that's, what's fun when um, there's already been time that we've all three spent together, not necessarily all three of us. Mm -hmm. um, you can dive deep fast. I think that that's a lesson in the, what I was just talking about with connection and with knowing people, you can dive deep fast. We always think about this diving deep takes, you know, years. And it's like, no, actually it doesn't take years. We can step into hard questions, truths about ourselves and um, vulnerability. So what you just asked me is that was just a big old invitation to vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, so here goes. I believe I have a soul. You have a soul. Anna has a soul. The plants in my yard have souls. The earth has many souls. And there's some part of who I am that is who I was at birth in my soul. And that environment, cultural environments, the systems of oppression that we're born into, and that can be in our families, um, that can be in our schools, that can be in our communities, um, in our countries, and come about so many ways. For me, what it's felt like is that it's piling earth on top of me. And I think for different people, they talk about it with different metaphors. But for me, it felt like years of earth getting piled on top of me, bricks and rocks and, you know, log dams, whatever you want to picture. But most of the time I picture it as just a lot of soil. I've pictured it as a wall um, before too. That's not just happening to me. That's happening to many of us. And, and you know, with different metaphors, describing it for different people and, and what they feel like it is. And there's two ways that I think about it. One is that I feel like I got buried. And in that buried space, I grew deeper into the earth because we have choices that we have to make when we can't control all those wall, that wall that's getting built on top of us. So I grew deeper into the earth and I allowed it. I allowed some of the oppressiveness of the culture of science. I allowed that. I can't just point the fingers at other people. And this is what the psychology helps us with is to recognize what part do we need to own? Um, I'm complicit in that system because I, I valued it and I couldn't see all of all of what was happening. And some good comes from that system that I've been a part of, um, of the prevailing system of Western science that many of us have been trained in. And so I grew all these roots and I started absorbing the energy and the nutrients from the earth and rested and then what you see me doing right now that you just, you kind of alluded to in the question you asked is I'm just like a plant and I'm like, I'm not going to sprout where the wall is. Why would I sprout where the wall is? The wall's there, right? And plants don't grow up. Sometimes they will actually, they'll grow up and through ice and snow, they'll grow up through um, earth and rock. And you, you know, those plants, we can see them sometimes struggling and staying really teeny for a long time because they grew up out of a, a crack in the bedrock. I have tried to do that and it hasn't worked. And so at some point in the space of psychology, you realize, all right, don't keep doing the same thing if you're not getting the results that you want. And I'm in this grow somewhere else space. So um, just like a plant, there's this giant rhizome 
And I've expanded that rhizome from below ground stem to make sure that people know what a rhizome is. And it's wild where you can pop up once you feel like you've taken the time to nourish yourself and to rest some. And so um, that's why I'm popping up in the space with psychologists, popping up in the space with all of the design school for regenerating the earth, popping up in a space of theology school, which has been quite an interesting new journey this fall. I'm also doing yoga teacher training. Uh, and that is a space in which I, I don't even know how to begin to describe how amazing the science of yoga is for the work that's ahead of us and how much a lot of what I'm learning is part of some faith traditions, is part of psychology, is part of practices to study and know the earth, are part of this 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 year old scientific traditions from India. And so, yeah, how do we, how do we do that? And how do we do it in a loving way, in a thoughtful way? I think a lot about how to make sure we honor where traditions have come from, but not always all the who's. And I say that because a lot of the who's are part of the system of oppression and don't honor the greater subconscious that connects us all and honoring that greater subconscious that connects us all means that one of the things that I found really fun with design school for regenerating the earth is I'm like, wow, y'all are thinking the same things that I've been thinking and where and how can we love that rather than feel threatened by it or need to put a name of a person associated with things, you know, where and how it, and, and then we can see that it's this cooperative work uh, that we want to build into. And as soon as too much gets assigned to anyone, we end up repeating the patterns of history. Right. Well, I, I think that there is also a particularly strong history of the suppression of traditional knowledge in the Western education system. Um, and we're really only told stories through this settler colonialism lens. And we're taught to learn and think in ways that align with the, the current paradigm. Um, but you're a professor at a Native American serving college. How has that experience informed the way you teach and do science in your place? Yeah, it's huge. It is so huge because at some point, three, four years in, and now I've been there 15 years, I realized that my role was to create space and guide community learning not to be a teacher because there are students from so many tribes across the U.S., including indigenous peoples of Hawaii, including um, tribes from First Nations from Alaska. And in that community of people who gather into a classroom space or into a meadow or bogs are way fun, um, bends and bogs, um, pick your place where we end up gathering. We gather in these spaces, everything, ha everyone has something to offer. And if we create that opportunity where we hear and respect all the different insights of our physical experience in a location, our cultural understanding, and then we're integrating it because of my role at a fairly traditional in terms of the way there's an expectation that Western science is something students in my program will be able to do when they graduate. And so where and how do we integrate that into see 
that Western science includes all of that. And science can be so much more than Western science alone. And so I feel like that's the way that I can honor the space of helping people understand how they'll navigate into careers and jobs and work with knowing what the prevailing dominant system of science is and understanding it, but then being part of this rising of many of us advocating that science um, science return to its roots. That's the way I've been talking about it. Um, we could talk about restoring science. Uh, the tradition of empirical science mm-hmm. is since the 1700s. Um, so the enlightenment, science's divorce from religion took place at that point in time. So that's not that long ago. So when we look to um, Native American cultures, I had the opportunity to be in Western Alaska with a woman who's Yupik. And there were ways she knew how to science when I walked the land with her that were new to me and that she would never have described as science. Because in her culture and in her language, in the Yupik language, there is no word for science. Because the practice of knowing and moving what we know into action to care for one another in a community, you know, it's what you do. It doesn't need a a word like the word science. And so some of it's like, that's part of the space that I've been trying to figure out is when are we in that stuck space that psychologists know how to help us understand because we don't have the words we need. We've gotten stuck in a narrow definition of of what the word science is. And then we have to add adjectives in, in front of it. And we say, well, it's indigenous science or it's, you know, traditional knowledge or, and then is that really helping us? (laughs) Maybe it is, um, but maybe, maybe it's stepping away from that word science and stepping into the word knowing and thinking of all the different ways that we navigate to knowing um, and trusting them more. I started with one of those first things that I said, we trust who we know. Maybe we need to know ourselves just a little bit better so we can trust our inner knowing. (laughs) Um, Maybe that's part of, that's right. And that's where pro-social in psychology. And I think our planet is a great teacher to, if there is a teacher, it's not me, it's the earth. (laughs) And in that, it helps us to know ourselves better. Um, She, I don't want to it mother earth. So she helps us to know ourselves better. Pronouns are just as important as verbs. <laughs> yeah. I think that that what you said there about science and, and just getting stuck on words. I mean, as you know, act is all about the problem with so many of our thoughts is the language that we use. Mm-hmm. And even having different different languages, you think in different ways. And it's so crazy how literally the words that we know and the words that we use for things really shape our perspective. So I think that that's so such a great point on bringing, bringing that in there. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm trying to piece together this thought and get it pieced together enough to ask a question, but I'm, I'm feeling like this deep connection to bioregional learning for you. It's rooted in this um, recognition that our is stuck in ways that perpetuate power structures, mm-hmm. something to that effect. And, you know, your metaphor of of oppression sort of piling earth on top of you and you putting your roots down, 
I feel in you this philosophy, this spirituality that that you formed through experience, through living life, where your bioregional learning by following your impulse to create spaces for for people to speak for themselves, for earth to speak for itself, for sense making and decisions to be literally like distributed throughout community and throughout the landscape. I'm really struggling to, to, to articulate what I'm feeling in you. But like, to me, bi-regional learning for you is has a lot to do with power and highlighting the ways that that we're stuck in existing power structures and that they are yeah. not bi-regional learning. And so let's go to the opposite side of that. It's liberation, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so bi-regional learning and our connection to the earth and to one another is liberation and is freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit what I was highlighting when I was like, this is, it's a mantra, but it's also what you do when you feel free. Yeah. And so where and how do we see and acknowledge and recognize the oppression and move out of its way? Because some of that is our own choice to continue to sit with all that earth piled on top of ourselves. And, and think, and this is where my brain went for quite a few years was think that the way forward was up through it instead of around. And I think that that's one of the gifts that the psychologists keep helping us identify is we're all on these extraordinary, beautiful journeys. Each of our souls, right. Are on these extraordinary journeys in the bodies that we have in this lifetime and how, many different possibilities are out there. Let's embrace them. That's that's the space that psychology helps us see is possibility when things feel impossible. And I hear, we, we were speaking about language. I hear the word impossible too often. And each time I hear it, like I get tense, like I can feel my body get tense um, because I have been there before into that feeling of impossibility. And I don't want to be there anymore. So, yeah. So I, I do have a question about bioregional learning, but I, mm-hmm. I made note that you said that you feel like the strong connection with like the tundra, the mountains, the desert in winter. And I was like, that's interesting because those are typically very barren landscapes. So is it the opportunistic species in that area? Is like, is that why? Or like, what is it about that kind of barrenness that you seem to like? Mm, mm. Um, that might be a whole psychology session, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does it what does it say about me that I like <laughs> barren places? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did have two children, so <laughs> natural birth and everything. So, um, oh, no. so it must mean something else about my soul. Um, I do like to see the rocks and the earth. I like the ice, snow, wind, cold. How incredible bursts of warmth are and warm days are when you know what it's like to be cold. Anyone who's gone out for a big winter ski, ice fished, snowmobiled in winter, pick your your cold season, get out there sport, you know what it feels like to step inside and have a hot cup of hot chocolate or a little bit of whiskey and a fire and a bowl of soup and right and, and get that warmth and that energy coming back in. I appreciate 
uh, we started with gratitude. I have so much more gratitude for the energy coming in when it's an energy limited part of our globe. So we're talking about energy limited or water energy and water limited parts of our globe. And you can appreciate the life that's there. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't like tropical forests, but I, it's just, it's not where I gravitate to. Yeah. So I guess it's the wonder. I think a piece of it is the wonder. Like we can say the word barren, but it's the wonder and how beautiful it is where fewer people go because they think of it as desolate and barren. And instead it's the beauty. And in that, we can bring that forward to bioregional learning, which is we keep hearing so much in the news, so much from people we trust about the desolation of our planet and the tragic loss of species, of ice and snow, of healthy vegetation, of turning over ground through mining practices that brings minerals to the earth that if buried aren't um, putting human and well-being and the lives of other species at risk. And we can hear all of that and feel the feels, see where we feel it in our bodies, know how that's showing up for us, but we also have to see the beauty. We, if, if we don't step into the beauty and the wonder and the magic, I've had quite a few conversations with people about using that word as a scientist. And people are like, that's kind of cool. You just said magic. You're a scientist. You're not supposed to say magic. And <laughs> we will never know everything. It's ego-driven and foolish to think we will get to a place of knowing all of what's magic and mystery about ourselves and our planet. And so I think that in that, there's an immense amount of beauty. And when we see and honor that beauty, we can then gravitate towards, towards, right? And that's the act space, the acceptance, commitment, therapy, act matrix space of then we can start to put it on its side that it some the, the ugliness brings us away, but the beauty brings us towards what's showing up in us that's beautiful, what's showing up in community that's beautiful and what and how that can return more and more of the beauty um, to our planet. That's great. I um, I resonate that with that really deeply. Um, the appreciation of beauty, I think, you know, speaking of our gratitude ritual we started out with, it helps us to seek a greater potential. It opens us up to that. And I think that's a really big part of, you know, individual spirit, spiritual journeys, but also it's a huge part of unlocking landscape scale regeneration, how do communities come together mm -hmm. to seek a higher potential. They have to see it. I think that there, there needs to be that deep, deep appreciation for beauty and wanting to create more of it. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you you clearly embody so much of this. Uh, you clearly have so much to teach. I'm glad you're a teacher. <laughs> Bring, bringing it back to bioregional learning, I'm I'm wondering, you know, how do you try to impart some of these um these perspectives, these ways of being with students? Yeah. So in the space in which I've served as a professor, I teach an introductory environmental science class. And it is a class that students who want to major in environmental science or environmental studies at Fort Lewis College take. So these are students who are saying in some way, some part, 
of what I learn at this school and what I do when I leave the school is going to be about the environment and the earth and, and the planet in some way. And I think it's really important that they have, I offer them the space to make choices because if I dictate what we do every week in lab, we won't get as far along. Like maybe there'll be a bunch of great experiences that come out of that. But in what we've talked about, if, if, if I have a lot of power in the classroom and the power I have is that I could design the whole curriculum for the whole semester without any student input. And yet I know the students are brilliant. And I know that a key goal I have is empowerment. I'm going to open it up. And so that has been a lot of fun. Um, and I've been doing that for about the class. I've been teaching it for five years, maybe six years now. And it took me about three years to get to a place where I was like, why am I planning all these field trips? Like, um, where do y'all want to go? And then of course the practicalities, right? The vans can only go so far. We've only got such so big a block of time, but you can have a lot of fun. So in this, you know, concept of if this gets expanded out into the bioregional learning centers, you can have a lot of fun going places only 30 minutes from home base, um, whatever that, you know, the bioregional learning center that might be the home base place so that it doesn't have to be that far. Then what do you want to do? And what do you want to see? So students came up with some things that you would expect. They want to go to a forest. They want to go to I don't think it's that unusual that they'd want to go to an, a high elevation wetland fen system. And they had reasons for picking that to get up in the mountains, but also they know that the, the wetland areas have incredible richness of ecosystem health benefits for human well-being. Wetlands do. There's so many different ways to talk about that. But then here's the thing that was really fun. One student was like, can we go to a hot spring? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. Sure. Of course we can. There's one just up the road. What do I have to do to set us up with the opportunity to go hot spring? And then I'm like, oh my God, am I going to be that professor? I'm going to be the professor that took their environmental science class to a hot spring. <laughs> you know, how are my colleagues going to see what I've done? Because word's going to get out, right? That's the hot spring professor. I also, they asked to go to a cave and I checked in with my community of people who I know around Durango and identified a cave within 30 minutes of town. Those two, there's other field trip things that I could describe, but those two were remarkable. So Durango Hot Springs has new ownership. We got there and the new owner shared with us the most incredible set of science in where and how the earth works to create hot spring water. So we got a giant pile of geology in that lesson. The engineering systems that he's added to the facility to improve the health benefits of the soaking in the water, which is all an environmental health component, totally fits with environmental science. We had an hour and a half conversation with him, an opportunity for students to ask him questions and understand where and how to make those two pieces um, geology and environmental health, a business, which I think it's great to see where and how can somebody have a career in it. And then we got to soak in water. Um, and he charged me this like incredibly low rate so that every student could have a chance to experience it. And experience needs to be part of bioregional learning. You can't go to a hot spring and not get in the water. And so, you know, I have to, 
you know, I'm telling this story now to you all. And I'm like, see, it makes sense. It makes sense. So I can't be criticized um, for being the hot spring professor, but I wouldn't have picked it. I would not have picked to go to a hot spring had it not been a student's request. And then several students, because we're doing the, the brainstorming out loud. So several students were like, yeah, take us to a hot spring and no regrets. I I'd easily do it again. And I think that there was tremendous learning value to it. So where and how, as groups gather at bioregional learning centers, each group will be unique in some way, right? Because it's a, a different group of unique people. Where and how can we give them the opportunity to make choices? And we'll, we can be like, all right, what you want to do is go see some really old junipers. Let's go see some really old junipers. Let's feel the wood. Let's smell the branches. Let's look at how this plant grew over 5,000 years with like lots of efforts that didn't lead for long to a big above ground upright stem. Let's have juniper story time <laughs> in a space with juniper. But for another group, they might not want to do that. And they might want to instead be in the sage, or they might want to be in the aspen, or they might want to be in the tundra, or they might want to be, let's not shy away from the places where we will feel grief because the forest is gone. One of the most remarkable learning experiences I've had in going someplace where I had no idea what it was about is the Berkeley pit outside of Helena, Montana. The water in this mined pit is crazy acidic and full of heavy metals to such an extent that there has to be monitoring in place to manage for the death of birds, but there's nothing else to do with the water at this moment in time, other than to just have this open pit of toxic water and there was a sign up next to the pit and I knew nothing about it. We were just in Helena, Montana. We were, this was years ago. My husband and I motorcycle trip from Fort Collins through the West, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, you know, kind of summer journey. And we ended up at the Berkeley pit and he's an engineer and I'm an ecosystem scientist. And there's a sign and the sign says how high the height of the water is in feet and how high it needs to be before there's excess water and it puts the communities nearby at risk of this water moving into the water systems that would affect Butte. Sorry, it's not Helena. It's Butte, Montana, if I remember it right, where the Berkeley pit is. Apologies to Helena. Y'all don't want to be <laughs> um, claim for that. And this is where science changes how you think about things. You know, he's an engineer. I'm a scientist. We looked at the sign and we're like, they're just giving us a number. And I can't remember what the number, but let's just say it was 6,552. And then the number is like 6,786, right? They're giving a level of precision and no error terms for something that could be huge and tragic for a community that puts it at risk. And so that also is what can happen in bioregional learning. So we can go places like that. And if some of the people along and involved can share that science story of we're human and we make errors. So let's know what the range of error is and let's take the precautionary principle and keep people safe. And then if we have that discussion, it absolutely makes sense that there should be somebody along in that space who's a psychologist to help talk people through what's showing up when you stand at the edge of a, 
a pit of toxic water, you, you know, with, with without acknowledging the error. And I feel like that's a great metaphor for our planet right now in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Is where and and who and how do we talk? That's the planetary boundaries framework that's um, been developed. I expect that there's a lot of error associated with whatever we speak to for planetary boundaries. And let's open ourselves to that space and also bring in psychologists and spiritual leaders that can help us to navigate what shows up when we learn and feel, feel into finite planet and having exceeded some of the boundaries for sustaining well-being. And our goal is well-being. That's what we're moving towards. I don't like to language too much into any direction of what we've seen a lot in the media of doom of death, of uninhabitable earth. There will be life here. We want to create and have our actions be so life thrives and many species of life thrive. And when we get into that uninhabitable, that's outside of the realm of science as far as I'm concerned. How how would we ever design a model, collect data, empirically validate, test the idea and disprove the idea of uninhabitability. That's like another whole podcast to talk about mm-hmm. how the process of science works. And that I just think that that's so unlikely to take place. Does that give you a flavor for bioregional learning? <laughs> Some of the ways that we can step into it? It does. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that there was a particular student that had a good example of bioregional learning. I'm not sure if you have like other examples of bioregional learning from your students or any of those that you would like to share? Maybe somebody that you that you mentor or have um, like a close relationship with? Yeah. I mean, our students, 20-year-olds, not all of my students are traditional in their age, but there are a lot of them are in their 20s and they're brilliant. They have grown up with what might feel new to someone who's 60. So where and what the health of our planet is for somebody who's 20. It has been their whole life. And then I'm teaching at a school with Native American students. So we went out last fall for a botany field trip. And the botany field trip is just to give students a flavor of that there's a phenomenal number of words, vocabulary terms associated with everything, every part of a plant and where and how those parts form structures and what's above ground and what's below ground. And just so they can think about, do I want to step into a deep dive in in that space, but also just an appreciation for fall at a really diverse forest site. So I take them to this really diverse forest site. And one student last fall was White Mountain Apache. It's a scavenger hunt that we do. And she comes back with a plant and a story. So she collects this plant and it fits one of the things on the scavenger hunt list. I can't remember if it was like a a plant that is still green, right? And it's kind of late fall when I have them do this. So what's still green? And she comes back and she's like, here's this plant. Here's what we do with it in my culture. Here's how many times I've collected it and how many different places I've collected it from. And look, it's also here at this place where we're together on a field trip. And it's so beautiful to sit in a space where I didn't have a plan that we would be doing medicinal plant experience, but that arises not because of what I know, but because of what the student knows. And then I was like, well, so we can eat it. So we should 
we should all try it out now. And she's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You can't just eat the plant because I said that it could be. And so then she told me um, and told the whole class more about where and how the plant has to rest after you've gathered it and where and what the process is for then after taking the rested plant to do something with it. And she offered to take the plant back to her dorm room and um, rest it for us and bring it to class in a few more weeks, prepared the way that it needed to be prepared. And by our regional learning, you know, let's value what people who've long lived on these lands know. Let's value what a rancher might help us understand about a plant that is um, wonderful for the way they manage land or difficult for the way they manage land. Um, we're each going to have different experiences with the plants, with the soils, um, seeing them in different ways. And what's the wealth of knowledge that comes together when we get to hear from everyone. So, uh, so yeah, so I'd say that's a big part for, for bioregional learning for me is I do happen to teach at a school where a lot of the people, a lot of the students have lived in this region for some time. Um, so it's a more regional college. And so that might be another, you know, space to be thinking in. How does a center developed with that vision partner with institutions of higher ed in some way that might not be regional, right? So where I went to undergrad is Duke University. Most of my classmates were not from North Carolina and I was not from North Carolina. We were from everywhere. And the knowledge of North Carolina wasn't part of what we were arriving to college with. So it might be a different way that a bioregional learning center serves an institution, partners with it, depending on the context of what that school is good at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I do I do want to sh sort of shift the bioregional learning conversation a little bit because I think that one of the the challenging things about bioregional learning is bringing in the larger systems. People understand it. People understand the the importance of of being able to think about planetary systems in nested ways as a heuristic, as a way for us to learn how to care for the whole earth. Like we have to look at those bigger systems. We have to mm -hmm. understand how they function, their states of equilibrium, how mm -hmm. can they be how they can be pushed like into phase transitions and into different ways of being. We need to be able to understand these these big scale systems. One of the things that we're finding to be a persistent challenge is people like think about that and they get it, but they don't hold it. For example, with the Colorado River Basin, landscape leaders that we brought together were enthusiastic about coming together at that scale and talking about regenerating the Colorado. But we get so preoccupied with what's happening locally. Mm -hmm. It's easy to lose track of that bigger story. It's not present. Um, yeah. And I think this is one of the big challenges of like planetary scale regeneration is thinking at those larger scales. Uh, and I know you have some some earth systems yeah. in your background. I'm wondering if you have any insights or yeah. I have if there's... a couple ideas. Great. Um, one is honor the storytellers, create space for them because it may be a part of the world that you've never been. I'll name Antarctica. But when people meet me and I can tell them from personal experience what Antarctica is like, it brings Antarctica into relation with them in a way that doesn't happen. If for me, it was a textbook that I read or a map or a scientific study that I read, what I keep finding in a rural, fairly conservative part of our country 
is that people want to know what have, where have I been? What have I seen? What have I done? What have I learned through direct experience in a place? So as much as we might say it's problematic to keep having people travel to remote regions of the earth, it's also problematic to not have people travel to remote regions of the earth to keep um, those stories of those places alive for us all. And then the other way that I think about it a lot for your question is to measure energy, to measure temperature. So what does that energy coming in do? What's, what's the work that it does to heat things up? Or if it's cold, cool things off. And where and how does that move water and air? When we start to pay attention to energy, water, and air, at a, and it could be dust and it could be soil too, right? At a local level, in any ecosystem, where and how can we do those measurements, understand something about the physics, and then from there, start to scale up. And to do that through storytelling too is, is what I picture. There are ways that the poles are connected to every region on our planet. So they may feel far away, But why and how are the poles relevant for this spot on earth where we all are right at this moment? And we could pick a place where Joe lives in um, Colombia. We could pick a place where I live, a place where Anna lives, and the poles are relevant to each and every one of those places. And so that gets us thinking this way across the earth. And then we would want to do the same thing to think this way ocean to land, land to ocean, ocean to land, land to ocean. And there's movement that way. And then the third way, three dimensions, is that we want to think this way up into the sky, right? And out into the universe. And if we can help people think about energy, water, and air, and maybe some of the soil particulate moving in all those different directions, what did they come up with? Once once we get the ball rolling, I would be so curious to play the game of where their ideas go for how something works. Because one of the things that I have high confidence in is that many of us get it. We know it. And in the right space of the facilitator, the guide saying, share with me what you already are thinking and know. People will be like, hey, here's how I think it works. And I'm amazed at how often they're correct. (laughs) And amazed, I shouldn't be amazed because I've played this game often enough. And so then it's like, well, when we aren't getting it right, what's going on there? right? What's going on when we we don't get it right? And sometimes I think it's because the person who's the guide, the educator has created an environment in which people feel they have to say what they think that person wants to hear rather than what they know. And I've been in those kind of learning spaces where I'm like, oh, oh, I see where this is headed. You're certain and I'm wrong. (laughs) if I have a different perspective and that shuts down, that shuts down the whole space. So where and how part of what we might want to do with these bioregional learning centers is train the guides is to create that space. Maybe that's what I'll be doing in the desert. Um, I won't necessarily, (laughs) I've thought about this, Benji. I'm not just throwing this out random. I've thought about where and how do we create some centers of guiding people to facilitate in new ways than what they might've experienced for facilitation. So we can get into that space of openness and exploration rather than the answer is. 
because yeah, whenever students think I know the answer, class is never as much fun. So I actually intentionally teach a lot of things that I'm not an expert on. And then I'm like, I don't know. Oh no. And, and I'm not lying and I'm not bullshitting them. And, and, and they like get the flavor. I'm like, I'm serious. I really don't know. So let's learn together. <laughs> and that actually just seems to continue that thread that you've woven through your story, that you're a community learning guide and not a teacher. So tell us, what's next in your journey of guiding bioregional learning in Southwest Colorado? Here comes the part that I'm not grateful for. Mm -hmm. I intention, with intention, chose to set up and buy this property for a bioregional learning center in a community that is facing challenges, economic challenges, as well as um, the impacts of intergenerational trauma of genocide on the the native populations of the region. And in a space where people are struggling, people may choose to do something very individualistic for themselves. And that's taking the form of theft. And I've lost some sense of security of feeling safe there personally, um, because things have been taken when I haven't been there. I don't know if people will circle back and decide that there's still something else to take. It is interesting to see what's been taken, right? So bikes and scales, and there's plenty of other things. Um, nobody's taken the books on God. <laughs> I still have all of those. <laughs> or the books on climate change for that matter too. <laughs> those don't have resale value, I guess. So I don't know. I'm in a one of those um, moments of reflect and there's lots of different approaches we can take. Talk to people, open it up to conversation, see where and how that might build a connection and, and a solution to one of these challenges of money and theft um, so that I can have people there doing community work, gathering and, and making things happen sooner. Um, I don't want this to slow down moving forward. So now I'm kind of trying to figure out what do I do? And mm -hmm. I have no regrets that I picked Cortez and Southwest Colorado. So I can't imagine that I'm the first person that has faced this challenge of wanting to do something in a community that that needs jobs and needs opportunity. And so I'm a security system. I mean, this is honestly what I need some guidance for. Um, I put up posted no trespassing signs and I'm like, but that's not the energy I want to channel <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. like trying to create this welcoming space and now I've got these posted no trespassing signs. Um, so yeah, um, those are that's kind of the most immediate thing right now. And then where and how some opportunities to grow, and this may self, sound self-absorbed, but grow my visibility as someone who can speak um, so that that can be a way that money gets funneled to this property and to a bioregional learning center. So if folks in Denver can invite me to speak and facilitate something, can that then be a path to, um, to bringing in money and earning the money and also connecting people in new ways? So I feel like I can picture these things that can happen. And then it's easy to get stuck in that a lot of times when conferences plan for speakers, they pick people because of that network of who knows who. And if you aren't in that, that network or in enough of these networks, you don't get picked, even though 
you can show up and be like, wait, I wouldn't even put it that way. I think it's so much bigger and broader. Some of the questions you all have asked me are beautiful. And so I think that that's maybe a space that the design school can be thinking about and pro-social can be thinking about too. I am so grateful, Anna, for the opportunity to speak with pro-social in November. So we, we've mm-hmm. just arrived at like a moment that I can return to how we started with gratitude um, because I don't always get invited to do things like that. Um, I haven't prioritized being at a prestigious school, writing a book, or what are some of the other tricks? Um, I haven't landed a TED talk yet, um, right? And so where and how do, do we look for the many? So I'm using myself and the way that it's not centered on me is that it means that there's many wonderful humans out there with great visionary ideas that we need to be lifting through these networks we have and are responsible for into visibility so that we grow the number of people. Um, doing this work. It's so easy for the same person to just show up in every single, you know, conference. And it's like, I've already gotten to hear them 10 times. I don't need to hear them again. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's what we hope that this podcast will be for. It's not just internally for the design school. We do want to make it public um, and something that you would be proud to show your community, your networks, things like that. And the only other thing I want to add, if there's a that kind of classic, is there anything we missed? Um, we are whole and our planet is whole, whole earth, whole us. I think that needs to be hashtagged and put out there. We've heard far too much of the language of broken and mm. irreversible. And if you start going to church, the little word that comes up a lot is brokenness and sin. And there are other ways that we can see that we've veered off course, but we remain whole and our planet remains whole and how we can, from that space, better see the path to healing and restoration. Mm -hmm. I'd tweet that. I'd put that on bumper (laughs) sticker too. (laughs) Lastly, Heidi, if people want to follow your work, they want to get in touch with you. uh, Are there any ways that that, uh, we can provide listeners to do so? Yeah. So at Heidi Mountains is me on social. Um, and that would get you to Instagram and um, I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, if it's not that, then it's my name, Heidi Stelzer. And in those spaces, I found social media to be a space um, that I can personally navigate with less technical skills, but I'm also creating a website. So the website and It'll feature the Bioregional Learning Center here in Southwest Colorado. Um, Should be live by the end of November. It's slow going um, to get that set up. And then from there, all those places have my email. So from all those places, people can navigate to to drheidistelzer at gmail.com. Simple, boring for my my email, but hopefully easy to find. Okay, well, thank you so much. It was always nice to talk to you. Yeah, thank you Um, so much. Appreciate you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration. If you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all this can be found in the show notes. Thanks. And please tell your landscape we said hello. Hello.